The following is a message from Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or Westminster Seminary, visit us online at westcal.edu or call us at 760-480-8474. That's online at wscal.edu or call us at 760-480-8474. This is a great a great privilege for me. I, I love what God's doing here at Westminster Seminary. California. Uh, Mike has been a, a good friend and, um, and a good mentor in many ways, so it's a real privilege to be here. Uh, I'm supposed to be done at what time? Somebody better tell me. If not, I'll just keep talking. Is it chapel over at 10? Oh, oh gosh, okay, we've got plenty of time. Man. Um, okay, I want to look uh, this morning with you at Colossians. I preached a series of sermons last spring at Coral Ridge from Colossians. I typically preach my way through books of the Bible and had never preached through Colossians before. And so I preached through Colossians last spring, 22 sermons that I entitled, series I entitled, Jesus Plus Nothing Equals Everything, and... um, The series was really born out of my own very painful experience in 2009. In fact, I'll tell you a little bit about that in a few moments, but 2009, for various reasons, was by far the most painful year of my life. Now, I'm only 38 years old, which means that more painful years are ahead, I'm certain. Uh, But as far as my own life and experience is concerned, 2009 was incredibly difficult on me and on my family, and these verses not only helped me rediscover the gospel, uh, but as a result of rediscovering the gospel, really saved my life all over again. So I want to look specifically at uh, chapter 1, beginning at verse 9, and I'm going to read through uh, verse 14. Colossians 1, beginning at verse 9. Paul writes, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And may God add rich and profound blessing to this reading of his holy and inspired word. Let's let's pray together. We pray, Father, that you would send your spirit now to be our teacher and to be our instructor, to open our eyes and our ears so that we might see your truth and hear your voice. We pray, come thou fount of every blessing and tune every heart and every mind to see and to savor your amazing grace. I pray that you would help all of us in this short period of time this morning 
see something of the gospel that would nourish us and strengthen us and embolden us. So we pray that you would come and do for us now what we are incapable of doing for ourselves. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, Some of you may know the story, others may not know the story, but in uh, 2008, I'm a South Florida native, was born and raised there, uh, and uh, moved away from South Florida. God saved me at 21 years old, and I married my wife, Kim, Um, and immediately after we got married, we moved away. We were away for nine years where I went to college in South Carolina, and then I went to seminary at Reform Seminary in Orlando, and then following my time in Orlando, we moved to Tennessee for two years where I was the associate pastor of a large church up there. After being there for two years, a group of people back home in South Florida asked if I would come back and plant a church, and I immediately said no. And the reason was because I knew for certain that I knew nothing about church planning. In fact, going through seminary, all of my friends who were interested in church planning really annoyed me. Um, They were typically the engineering majors in college, the math majors in college, the people who really liked detail and were good at administration. And I was a preacher and teacher and people person and, you know, loved being pastoral but didn't think that I had what it took at all to plant a church, but these people down in South Florida were very persuasive, Um, and after my wife, Kim, and I wrestled with the Lord for about three months, God finally pinned us to the ground and called us to South Florida to plant a church, New City Presbyterian Church was the church that we started in 2003, August of 2003. First year was really tough because I didn't know what I was doing and nobody around me knew what they were doing, but God blessed the work anyway, and we experienced some real growth quick growth in the first year, and the church was developing. God was doing great things in the church. God was doing great things through the church, Uh, and at about our five-year mark, we were getting ready to celebrate, or we had just celebrated our five-year anniversary as a church. Uh, Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church, which is the church that was founded by and for a long time pastored by uh, D. James Kennedy, which is about nine miles down the road from us, Asked, came to me, the pulpit committee came to me and asked if I would consider. He had died in 2007, so they approached me and said, would you consider coming and being the pastor here? And I said, no. I mean, I was emphatic about the fact that this was not what God was calling me to do. I, I knew uh, the amount of work that would need to go into really replanting Coral Ridge. It had been a church in decline for about 10 years or so, and, um, and I knew it was going to be very painful, and I didn't want to endure that kind of pain. So I said no. Um, I was humbled. I was honored that they would ask, but I said no. About three months later, they came back, and I said, again, I'm humbled, I'm honored, but no. About five months later, they came back and asked again, and... Um, Uh, I said the only way that I would ever consider doing this is if we merge the two churches because there's no way I could go nine miles down the road and pastor a church and leave the church that I planted behind. I would feel like I was abandoning my family. 
So after about three or four, this is making a very long story, very short, but after about three months of really investigating this, I had a team from Coral Ridge and a team from New City meeting together on a weekly basis to really discern whether or not this is what God was calling us to do. After three months of that, God made it clear this is exactly what he was wanting us to do. And so we came together as one new church, um, uh, Easter Sunday, 2009, and it was explosive in the most glorious ways. It really, really was. I mean, there was a tremendous amount of excitement and enthusiasm, and it lasted for about eight or nine days. And then all all of the fireworks that we anticipated started to go off and started to blow up. I mean, all of the things we knew we would face going into this difficult situation started to happen. Um... You know how they say, uh, you know, 10% of the people make 90% of the noise, and that was certainly true with regard to the merger. There were handfuls of people who did not want anything to change, people from Coral Ridge who wanted the ministry to go on exactly the way it had been going on for 50 years. And the fact of the matter is it needed some radical updating in some various ways, philosophical ways, theological ways, practical ways, those sorts of things. So all of this stuff is blowing up, and my life is increasingly becoming miserable. Really, I had never in my life faced the kind of firestorm that I was facing as a result of this. And so I was, my family and I, we vacation on the southwest coast of Florida. We live on the southeast coast, and we uh, travel two hours across the state to the southwest coast every year. My three kids, I'm father of three, Gabe, Nate, and Jenna, um, and my wife, Kim, we travel across the state, and we vacation in Marco Island, and uh, right about the time we were heading to go on vacation is when things were really getting bad at the church. I mean, a petition was being circulated to have me thrown out. I mean, little, just to give you a snapshot, I would stand up to preach, for instance, on a Sunday morning, um, and as soon as I would stand up to preach, certain choir members would stand up in protest in front of the whole congregation and walk out. Okay? I mean, it was bad, very, very, very bad, very bad. So I, I'm on vacation, day number one, and I look at my Bible reading plan, and it has me reading Colossians chapter one. And so I open up my Bible, and I start reading Colossians chapter one. And um, this is my prayer to God. I'm going through here, verse 9, 10, 11, and, and these verses are so resonating with me because I was so weak, I was so desperate, I was so ready and willing to give up and give in. I knew that this was going to be extremely difficult, but I had no way of anticipating that it would have the kind of effect that it was having on me. And so I'm reading these verses, um, and in verse 9, second part of verse 9, that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And I stopped and I said, man, do I need that. I mean, I really need that. I, my, my view and my conviction regarding God's sovereignty and God's providence is resolute. Um, it is strong, but when you go through difficult seasons like this, you start, you know, your theological knees at times start to knock. And so I remember thinking at that time, did I misread something? Is this not what you wanted us to do? I mean, God, what are you doing? So I'm thinking, I mean, I need to be filled with the knowledge of your will. I need spiritual wisdom and understanding, not just, um, you know, man-centered wisdom and understanding. I needed God-centered wisdom and understanding. I needed to know how to navigate these difficult waters that I had never been in before. So I'm reading through this, I get to verse 10, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. I was so tempted at that time to 
lash out and to bury these people who were dead set against me. And I'm thinking, I know that is not very Christ-like, okay? So how do I navigate these waters and respond to these persecuting people in a way that demonstrates the power of the gospel. I want to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work. I wanted this crucible of suffering to produce change in me and change in the church, increasing in the knowledge of God. I wanted this difficult season, these trials and tribulations, to result in increased knowledge of God, who he is and what he's done Verse 11, may you be strengthened. I needed strength like I had never needed it before, really. With all power, not just any kind of power, but power that is according to his glorious might, not man-made might, but God-made might. For all endurance, I was ready to quit, ready to give in. Endurance was something that I tangibly needed in ways that I had never needed it before. And patience, I needed a tremendous amount of patience. Uh, With joy, and I thought to myself, I stopped there on that morning on vacation and thought, those are two things that we do not typically associate with one another, patience and joy. I'm not a really patient person as my you know, driving record will testify. I just got a notice the other day saying if I don't pay a ticket in the next 15 days, my license will be suspended for like the 15th time. So I've got to get that done when I get home. But I'm thinking, okay, endurance, I understand that. Patience, I understand that. But joy, Is it possible to have joy-fueled, joy-infused patience and endurance? Um, Giving thanks to the Father, and I'm thinking, okay, the last thing that I felt like doing in that moment was to give thanks to God for what I was experiencing. I was not in a thankful mood at all regarding what I was going through. And so I'm, I'm sitting there on my balcony looking over, it's not my balcony, we don't own a place over there, it's just a place we rent, but sitting on the balcony, the rented balcony, um, looking over the Gulf of Mexico, being reoriented and wrecked by these verses, and simply stopping at the end of verse 11 and saying to God, what are you doing? Literally, what are you doing? I don't understand what you're doing, I don't understand why you're doing it. None of what I'm experiencing makes sense at all. It seems like we've taken two churches, one that was doing well and one that was seemingly doing okay, bringing them together, and now both churches are blowing up. I didn't understand what God was doing. And so I remember crying out and saying, just give me my old life back. Um. And God sweetly reminded me through these verses that it wasn't my old life I wanted back. It was my old idols I wanted back. And he loved me too much to give them to me. And as I started reflecting on my own idolatry and what God was teaching me, I came to the realization that I never realized how dependent I had become on human approval and human acceptance until God took it away. I mean, I had always been in places where I was, for the most part, approved and loved and accepted, and I could not understand why I was continuing to do the same kind of gospel work, but it was being resisted so vehemently. I could not understand why these seemingly nice people inside the church would be so resolute against me regarding the work that we were trying to do, and so... I didn't realize until God stripped that approval and acceptance away from me just how dependent I had become 
on it. And so I'm reflecting on these verses, what I need, my own idolatry, wrestling with the pain and the suffering and the difficulty that I was facing, that my wife was feeling. I didn't want my kids growing up and hating church. And, you know, we were talking, you know, humorously about starting a Christian reality television show simply called Christians Behaving Badly because these people were ridiculous, man. I mean, they were ridiculous. The things that they said and the things that they were doing, I'm convinced that handfuls of them could not have been regenerate based on the way that they were behaving and the tactics they were using. And I did not want my kids growing up hating the church. It was weighing heavy on my wife. It was weighing heavy on me. Um, And so I'm reading through these verses thinking, I need all of that Give me my old life back. My own idolatry is being revealed. And then, as I'm praying through these things, I get to the second part of verse 12, and I'm thinking, how do I I experience practically what Paul is praying for here to the Colossians? Where, Where does the power come from to experience all of the things that he prays for here. And this is where second part of verse 12, 13, and 14 absolutely changed my life, really changed my life. And I had always known theologically that the gospel is not just for non-Christian people, but it's for Christians too. I understood that. Okay? I was trained to think like that. I understand the Christ-centered plot line of the Bible and that preachers are to preach the gospel from every text in the Bible. I understood that. I understood that the gospel doesn't just ignite the Christian life, but it's the fuel that keeps Christians going and growing every day. I understood that. But it's one thing to understand that theologically and to embrace that theologically. It's another thing for that to become a reality when you're going through a season in life where you need that to really take root in some brand new ways. And this is where these verses help me because where Paul, the Apostle Paul, grounds all of these things. Notice, this is so important to notice. And it may seem basic, but I promise you, when you are in the crucible of pastoral ministry, you will keep coming back to this reality. At least you ought to keep coming back to this reality every day, preaching this same gospel to yourselves every single day. He says, notice, giving thanks to the Father who has already qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has, verse 13, already delivered us from the domain of darkness and has already transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we already have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And I circled all of those words in my Bible, qualified, delivered, transferred, redeemed, forgiven. Because Paul anchors everything he prays for in something that's already been done. And what, he, what his main point here is we become practically what we already are positionally, that what you need practically is a daily rediscovery of your position. This is what it means to preach the gospel to yourselves every day. This is what it means. It means that you you continually reorient yourself back to God's justifying grace in your life, something that he's already done for you. Now, what that did for me practically in a moment where I was feeling like um, I needed the acceptance and I needed the approval and I needed the affirmation of those around me or else I could not do the ministry God was calling me to do. And what God did through these verses was to show me that 
all of the acceptance, all of the approval, all of the affection that you long for are already yours in Christ. You don't need to go out and get something that you already have. That's what I learned. And what it helped me to do was to lead with great courage and generosity. It caused me to lead um, in a way that was bold because no longer did I have to care or rest in what other people thought of me, the approval of other people, the acceptance of other people, the love of other people is not something I needed to do the work that God was calling me to do. He was reminding me that everything I need and long for in Christ I already possess. Which is why the ongoing exhortation of the Bible when it comes to gospel-based sanctification is Become increasingly what you already are. Become practically what you already are positionally. That, I cannot even begin to tell you how that revived me, helped me, um, reoriented me, wrecked me, and reminded me that everything I need in Christ I already possess. Now, I reflected on this further and thought, okay, and I did this through the series on Colossians, how does this impact basic things like a marriage relationship or a relationship between, you know, father and his children, like me and, you know, Gabe, Nate, and Jenna? Something like this, what these verses tell me, because they tell me everything I need in Christ I already have, it tells me that all of the love, for instance, that I long for, I already possess in Christ. And that enables me, with great generosity and sacrifice, to love my wife, to love my children, without fearing that in a particular moment that love might not be reciprocated. We do that all the time. We do it as husbands. We do it as fathers. You know, I, I will... I I do not give myself fully to you because I'm afraid I might be taken advantage of. In other words, the way we are practically is very conditional as it concerns the love that we distribute to family and friends and that sort of thing. So all of these verses in the Bible that talk about radical sacrifice and radical generosity become a radical impossibility if we don't grasp the gospel. Because now, if I... If I condition what I give to Kim based on what I think she might give back to me, our relationship will begin to shrink. It will be stunted. But if I understand in the gospel that all of the love and acceptance and approval I need, I already have in Christ, that frees me to give all that I am to my wife. It frees me to give all that I am to my children without needing anything from them in return. I get to revel in their enjoyment of my love to them without needing anything from them in return. That changes everything. When we, I, and I know you guys hear this all the time here, which is so important, which is why I love the ministry of this seminary. The gospel has to be central in your life in some remarkably practical ways. It has to be. You'll never make it. You'll never make it in life. You'll never make it in pastoral ministry. You will, you will be remarkable at creating a congregation of moralists if you do not understand the gospel, proclaim the gospel, demonstrate the power of the gospel, show how the gospel alone has always only been the antidote to sin. It's kind of the, I was having a conversation with someone the other day and we were talking about 
Um, and then I got to finish. We were talking about, um, you know, the, the whole seeker sensitive, you know, movement and, and a lot of the churches that react to that and those sorts of things. And um, I said, what's fascinating about the whole discussion, really, is they're asking the wrong questions and coming up, therefore, with the wrong answers. Because the questions that they're asking is primarily this. Is the worship service for non-Christians or is it primarily for Christians? And I said, listen, that's almost an irrelevant question if you understand that the worship service is first for sinners. And since both Christians and non-Christians are sinners in need of the gospel, we need, if we're going to create gospel-centered worship services, we need to understand something about the need of the gospel for Christian people too. In fact, that was one of the big hang-ups at at Coral Ridge when they, for so long, what they understood the gospel to be was something that people outside the church only need. So when I would say things like, if you've been a Christian for um, 50 years, you need the gospel today just as much as someone who doesn't know Jesus at all. And that was scandalous to them. And of course, I qualify that by saying they need God's justifying grace but you need God's sanctifying grace but both justifying grace and sanctifying grace flow from the gospel that's what Paul says in in Romans the gospel is the power of God unto salvation and contrary to what a lot of people think it doesn't simply mean the power of God unto conversion it's the power of God unto salvation justifying grace sanctifying grace and glorifying grace so I just I mean meditate on this it saved me Um, and it forever informed the way that I need to preach if I'm going to preach in a way that um, God will use to create gospel-dependent people, gospel-loving people instead of moralistic uh, people who simply operate with a do-right-because-it's-right-to-do-right mentality. That's the kind of garbage that's killing the church, unfortunately. So let me pray. Thanks for being attentive. Let me pray. Father, take this gospel and massage it deep into our bones. We need you to weave this gospel into the deepest fabric of our being. I pray that you would open our eyes and soften our hearts, uh, that you would inform our minds and enlarge our hearts and bend our wills in a gospel direction. I pray that you would use this seminary and this pack of students to be a catalyst for gospel rediscovery inside the church. I pray that there would be an ongoing revival of gospel centrality inside the church, that we would increasingly come to understand what that means and how that should inform our preaching and our singing and our praying and all of the various ministries that flow from inside a local church. So revive your church, I pray, according to the power of your gospel and enable us, allow us to be able to play a small part in that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Copyright 2010, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.